0: Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Psalm 72, verses 1 through 20. If you'd like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 485. Please stand for the reading of God's word. O Solomon, give the king your justice, O God. And your righteousness to the royal son, may He judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May, he, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities and like the grass on the field. May his name endure forever His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Beloved, good morning. Let us go together, the Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, for the ways that you care for us. Father, we pray that you would pour your spirit on us, that you would speak to us now from your word, open these things up to us. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of humility to be like Jesus Christ, to see in the way that he sees, to minister as he ministers. Lord, that we might be just and righteous. Father, also that we may show his mercy and his love to one another. We lift these prayers together in his name. Amen. There is crisis in Israel. David, the king of Israel, is dying. He's on his bed. We're told that he is continually cold and he cannot get warm. And in the middle of all this, one of his sons, Abjona, has gone out and declared himself to be king. He's offered many sacrifices. He's gathered some of the priests with him. He's gone out and gathered the people together. And he himself has said that he is the king of Israel. So Bathsheba, who we're told is David's favorite wife, comes to David on his deathbed and says, O king, he has gone out and lifted himself up. He's made himself the king. He has put himself out there. He has invited all of the leaders of the people to come together, except for Solomon, your son. When you die, we will be killed. So David from his deathbed instructs that Solomon has to be clearly made king in the presence of the people of Israel. And you may be wondering, why are we concerned about royal intrigue from 3,000 years ago? And the issue is larger than the secession of the throne, because the issue at the time is the issue of the temple. David's heart desire had been to build the temple. God had told him previously that he would not be the one who would be allowed to build it because he was a man of war and there was too much blood on his hands. But David had begged the Lord to create a temple among his people. David had said to the Lord, How can I live in a house made of wood and you, Lord, live in a tent? And he's referring, of course, to the tabernacle which had been appropriate in the days when the people were wandering in the wilderness and then they had come into the land and the tabernacle was still there, the one that God had shown Moses on the mountain and they had built with the different tapestries and the acacia wood. The Ark of the Covenant was there. It was the tabernacle that was carried around. In fact, Jesus himself refers to this, the well, John refers to Jesus talking about this in the beginning of John's Gospel where he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word there is tabernacled. He dwelt in a tent among us. He tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is the tabernacle that was there at the time. And David said, Lord, you're living in a tent. And begged the Lord to build the temple. And so God gave David permission to put it together and showed him what to do. And David had sat down with Solomon and had gone over in great detail all of the things that needed to be done to build the temple there within the city. And now David is on his deathbed. One of his sons is trying to usurp the throne. Solomon is in danger of being thrown out, being killed when David himself dies. And so David wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. And that is the context of this psalm. So David will read in 1 Chronicles 29, 21 and following, Set it up so they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs. And they drank their offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king a second time because he had already been coronated. And they anointed him, poured oil over his head as prince of Israel. And then we read in 1 Chronicles 28, David said to Solomon, his son, be strong, be courageous, and do it. Do not be defrayed. Do not be dismayed. The Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, is finished. So how does this get us to Psalm 72? Well, the first question is, who wrote the thing? I know it says of Solomon at the beginning of it, but if you look down at verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And this is a big psalm. It's obviously a coronation song for the new king coming in. It proclaims the greatness of the king and the kingdom. But it is such a big psalm that, like, kings in the ancient Near East were not known for their humility. But even with that, oh my goodness, this psalm, it is over the top. And the question is, would Solomon even say this about himself? Like, would he even write about himself the things that are here? The psalm is so clearly about more than the human king of Israel that the Targum, which is a, an, an ancient Aramaic translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic, actually translates the first verse Give the king, the Messiah, your justice. They add in a word. It's not there in the Hebrew text. So that's a bit of interpretation. But the 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 men that were translating that translation of the Old Testament looked at this psalm and went, This can't be a song that's just about a king. And we also have that statement at the end: the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And we see David's last words. They're in 2 Samuel 23 and i kind of think that what happened is this actually you know john calvin john calvin interpreted this as being written by david for solomon when you look at the language where it says of solomon it could be taken that way when you look at the language of the psalm it's much more the language of solomon in the wisdom writings not so much the language of david in the psalms but the concepts are all david everything here is david And it really ties back to David's last words that are there in 2 Samuel. And I think what happened is this, that Solomon is at his father's side on the day of his death. And he hears David's heart, and he hears David's last words. And I think what we have here in Psalm 72 is the heart of David in the words of his son Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. That David had his final prayer, his final statement, and Solomon has taken his father's words and written this psalm, and we get this picture of the prayers of David, and David focusing on the things that are really, truly, preeminently important in life. And so I believe that that's what we've got, Is the heart of David in the day of his death taken by his son Solomon written down for us to look at it? And so we have this psalm, which is in Hebrew. I remember in seminary hiding from my Hebrew professor, and it didn't work. I was in a room where there was like, I shouldn't have done this. There was only one door into the room, and I was in the room, and he came in the room, and I was like, Well, uh, hi, Dr. Klein. Um, and he, he said, Frederick, I need to talk to you and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I know how my Hebrew studies are and uh, and he helped me which was lovely he like worked me through and talked to me about how to, to work with this I noticed when Mark asked that we preach um, on Psalms I went back and looked, 14 years of pastoral ministry I, I'll confess to you, I preached on the Psalms four times I'm, I'm more a narrative guy or maybe like an epistle but the Psalms these are poems, and they're designed to speak to us in a, in, a, in a deep and meaningful and emotionally powerful way. It's not like the logic of an epistle. It's not like the, just the fact stuff from a narrative. These are designed to speak to our soul and to lift us up. One of the nice things about um, Hebrew poetry, too, is it gives you an outline, so that's really cool because it's kind of built into the psalm. Um, the outline is not what you would normally suspect or what we would normally suspect as modern Americans. When we're reading something, we kind of expect the important part of an article that we're reading to either be like at the very top in the first paragraph, like in, well, I was going to say a newspaper, which were sort of like printed out web pages, um, or in maybe a scientific paper or something, you would have the, the, the conclusion down at the bottom, and that would be the, the important part. But the way Hebrew structures things, grab a hold of your bulletin right quick. I'm going to show you something from the, the New Testament that will illustrate this easily. But if you look at the sermon outline, um, I've got a verse down here, John uh, 13, and uh, thirteen thirty four and 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the night he was betrayed. And he says... A new commandment I give you, and then look how it's typed here, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the structure of this, the way I've typed it out so you can see it more easily, is called a chiasm, which is after the Greek word chi, which looks like an X. If you've ever been in a church and they've got the X with the R sticking or the P sticking up out of the top of it, That is the first two letters of the name of Christ in Greek, chi-ro, X-R, Christos, Christ. And so chiasm, um, there's a structure kind of like an X. So there's stuff on either side. So there are things that parallel. That you love one another is paralleled with if you have love for one another. And then we've got a second level of parallel. Just as I have loved you is paralleled with by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And then we've got the part in the middle that's the important part, which is you are also to love one another. So there's stuff on either side, and it parallels, and then there's stuff that stacks in, and then we kind of get to the middle, and the middle is going to be the important part that we're really, really supposed to pay attention to, that usually we just kind of breeze over because we're modern Americans, and no one sticks the important part in the middle, except for God in the Old Testament. So it may be something you want to kind of keep up with. Um, and so we've got the structure that's here where we've got these parallel concepts. If, if the idea of X marks the spot is too difficult, you might want to just think of a sandwich. you got your bread on both sides, you got meat in the middle, that's the important part that's right there in the middle. So if you look at the outline here, what you'll see is I've broken out the different parts for you, and you can see the things that parallel each other off and so forth. We're going to begin where the psalm begins, of course, with the character of the king, and if you look there at 72.1, um, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. I, I mean, I can hear David and Solomon hearing this because Solomon is David's son. And so the, the beginning of the prayer is justice and righteousness. And I'd love to tell you cool Hebrew things from this, but basically they both just refer to like judicial equity, like, what, like a judge that issues a decision and that it does it in a way that is right. He's not corrupted. He's doing the things that are right. It's that sense of like righteousness, equity, uncorrupted. That's what's going on. Uh, that the prayer is that the king would have that. And I want to suggest to you as we look at this that we can pull some different things out of it. One, the example of the king of Israel is an example of Christ. Also an example of us as Christians in following Christ, and also an example I'm going to submit to you of our leaders, um, both leaders in in the civil government, but also leaders within the church. And so there there are a number of things that get kind of smooshed together in the Old Testament, um, and we can kind of begin to think of this. But this concept of having that sense of rightness That is something we would want God to give to us is not something that's strange to us who spend more time probably in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that is the Christian call that we would reflect the character of Christ, that we would be like God in an appropriate way, showing his character, his justice, his righteousness. Solomon talks about how wisdom is what leads a king to govern rightly. Over in Proverbs 8, he says, Does not wisdom call? By me kings rule. The rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule. The nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and diligently seek me. And wisdom is personified kind of as a stand-in for God there that speaks to and leads the king. Over in Proverbs 14, Solomon makes very much the point that's in the first part of our our. Uh, scripture reading here, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. An easy example. Years ago, I was traveling with uh, Mission of the World into um, a recently former communist country. Um, Our team was carrying actually a lot of money um, because banking in those days was very bad, and we were carrying payroll in um, for our missionaries in cash. Also a bunch of medical supplies. And we were in a room with a couple of guards, and they kept talking to us. And we kept talking to them, and they kept talking to us, and we kept talking to them. And this went on for a long time, and they were getting more and more frustrated. And we knew what was up because we had been briefed on this by the leaders of the the expedition before. And we kind of knew how this was going to go, and they were wanting a bribe. And we were not going to give them one. And we finally just were dumb and answered their questions truthfully, specifically, briefly, and obtusely to the point where they became so frustrated and angry that they threw us out. And then I'm giving them bribe. Solomon, Proverbs 17, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. It's not just bribery. There are so many different things. We need leaders In the church, also in the nation, who reflect the character of God and who will rule justly. And that does exalt a nation in ways that show up on insurance tables. People tend to prosper more in a setting where the government is not corrupt. And that is one of the things that we're being called to pray for here. And there's this notion that as the king is righteous, if you look at the second part of the chiasm down verses 18 and 19, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Not just the glory of the king, but the glory of the Lord who does wondrous things. So let's kind of press on into our second part of the psalm. if you go look at verses 2 through 4, May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of need, the needy, and crush the oppressor. Man, um, Mark and I had talked in advance a little about like the, the sermon topic in the hymns, and he reminded me I needed to give you a title for this thing and all that kind of thing. Um, but not really about the detail of the service, but I, I love God's providence in this. I mean, we've got the, the Operation Christmas Child thing here. Um, that's a ministry of grace and mercy. There's happy wheels. There's the benevolence offerings of the communion. There are ministries to the children at the um, schools across the street. There are many things that we do with benevolence ministries, and that, that characteristic of of care for the poor and ministry of the poor is a defining characteristic of the gospel. It's it's not a defining characteristic of autocratic Middle Eastern kings in the first, first millennium, second millennium B.C. Jesus made this point, Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those are who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones execute authority over them but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be the slave of all and whoever would be first must be your servant for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I can tell you that Solomon, in his glory, talking about God coming and doing wonderful things and blessing the king and giving his righteousness, the people of that day are not thinking that the next thing coming out of his mouth would be so take care of the poor. The rabble, the peasants, the serfs. And that is the heart of the gospel. This was an enduring problem throughout the history of Israel. Solomon's son is going to wreck the whole kingdom. And he's going to do it specifically on this, where he doesn't take care of the people that are poor and needy. It's how he's going to blow everything up into Israel and Judah. But this is a problem that runs through the entirety of the Old Testament. I'm going to pull out a verse from Ezekiel. I think it speaks to us today. today, And also speaks within the context of the psalm. Ezekiel 34, he's talking about the, the shepherds of Israel. And these could be the civil leaders in Israel but also the priest and those who are ministering. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them. Just let me tell you, if you know of anyone that is driven by rage and anger, they are not a good shepherd, nor reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for the wild beast. My sheep were scattered. They were shattered, scattered over the mountains and every hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to seek or search for them. We think of the mountains as beautiful. I'm going to go up to the mountains this weekend. It'll be lovely. We'll see the fall leaves. Um, it'll, it, it, we, nice pictures and mountain vistas. A mountaintop is a place to go to die. They are barren, they are cold, they are rocky, there is high wind, there is nothing that grows there. Verse 3 of our psalm, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. And that word bear prosperity I think is going to make more sense um, if we were farmers. But the word that's there is the word of agricultural produce and bounty. Let the mountains pour fruit, just have this bountiful fruit all over them. Which is crazy. Mountains don't have bountiful fruit. Mountains are rocky crags and ice and wind and death. And you begin to see the blessings of the Lord that even in that kind of place, even in that kind of place, there can be beauty. And there can be fullness and there can be blessing and you can think of those Thanksgiving cornucopias and like the blessings just blossoming out. And he's praying that even for the mountains. And again, the people listening to this, like they're not going to the mountains on vacation. That is a place you stay away from in 900 BC in Israel. It's where wild beasts are. May people be blessed in him. All of the nations call him blessed. Down there in seventeen, seventy-two, seventeen, which is the other side of our our little chiastic pair. All of this, by the way, is absolutely proof of the Messiah. All of this is proof of the Messiah. John the Baptist is in prison. He's heard about the stuff that Jesus is doing, and he sent word by his disciples to Jesus. Matthew 11, 2 through 6. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And what is Jesus going to say to that? Like, to let him know, hey, okay, I'm the real deal. Like, we're cousins. You've known me your whole life. But what he says to John is not some giant theological thing or a huge, like, spiritual insight that we might expect. I guess it is a huge spiritual insight, but not the one we would expect. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that bountifulness and that ministry to those who are poor and needy and weak and hurting is the heart of the gospel. And that is what begins to expand Through all the earth, through all generations. And so we've got this beautiful passage here as we get to Beyond the Sun and the Moon. This is verses 5 through 7, and then the counterpart part of it in the Chiasm is verse 16 and 17a. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon through all generations. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun that's a long time that's a long time but it's not just like yeah the sun is up there the moon is up there those are going to be up there for a long time there's a substantial teaching about this and you've got to go a long way in the bible to go and get it but i'm going to go and grab it for you because i think this is exactly what we're being called to notice In the 21st chapter of Revelation, John begins this vision saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Dwelling place is basically going to be tabernacle, but wait. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and we their, and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall be there mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. His blessings will continue to the sun and the moon are no more. looks forward to a new heavens and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like the showers that water the earth. This is not like where you've got your lovely lawn and it's green and you go out and you mow it and it looks really good and your wife says, yeah, You did a good job there on the lawn. Again, we gotta think like farmers in 900 BC. The mown grass is probably something like a hay field and it's been cut down to the quick, and it's all brown. I don't know if you've ever been driving out through like rural South Carolina and seen after a harvest time where they cut a field down, and it's just all brown, and it looks dead. And this is a picture of new life, that God is the one who pours out the rains, that he sends the showers to water the earth, and then there's an amazing thing that happens. All that brown field, it turns green. And it grows more grass. And there's bounty that's there. 72.16, may there be an abundance of grain in the land. And here's this theme again. On the tops of mountains, may it wave. A striking thought for anyone who's a farmer because they are not farming the tops of mountains. But the grain will be there, the abundance of it. May the people blossom in cities like the grass of the field. I love that vision of just flowers blooming. It is a beautiful picture of fullness and blessing and joy. I was, um, Sandy and I were out to dinner the other night. We went to a barbecue place. It was one of these places that had TVs around the room. I don't really particularly like that when I'm out for a restaurant. Um, over Sandy's shoulder was an ad for like a perfume, and it was beautiful. There were like, it was all these flowers and this riot of color, and there were pinks and yellows and blues and all this. And I'm like, that's just, it was gorgeous and that's the picture here blossoming forth just pouring out blessings something that is so beautiful and in the cities and they are not thinking about like our cities which can be you know kind of nice and stuff like that people want to live in cities if you're caught in a city and can't get out in 900 BC you're going to be suffering disease and, disease and starving there's an army outside that's laying siege a city is a place where you're all trapped in there you can't grow food there's not adequate water it's squalor there's no plumbing. In the face of that, God gives blessing that is like flowers blooming. Back to Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the temple of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, the other side, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of the God and of God and of the Lamb is in it, and His servants will worship Him. That is what Solomon is looking forward to. That is what he's talking about. And the time, it will come when the world will flower. And there will be blessing. And there won't be any more need of a sun or moon. And there won't even be a temple, which is the big deal thing here. Because God will be so present with us, we won't even need that. And if you look at it, John compares Jesus' first coming to the tabernacle as glorious as it was. And here John compares it to something beyond even the temple. Something so permanent. It's not even like a building beyond the sun and the moon. And the the impact of this for you, if you're like, Frederick, there should be something practical for me from this psalm. Well, yes, ministering to people who are poor and needy. And ministering the love of Christ. But the main impact, I think, from this psalm is... Just the glory of God and the abundance of blessing and the hope that we look forward to and there will be no death or dying or mourning or crying. Solomon is listening to his father die. The end of the prayers of David. And this is the blessing that he brings. And it's not just across time he makes the point that it is to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72, 8 and 11, and then the other balance to it is Psalm seventy two 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10, coastlands even to Tarshish. Coastlands probably could be coastlands. Probably means islands really would be a little bit better translation. Um, the river is the Euphrates River. So Euphrates River, if you don't remember, like, your sixth grade ancient Near East studies, the Euphrates River ran through the middle of Babylon. Um, it's, it runs through, like, the heart of um, Iran. It goes down into the Persian Gulf. If you think about the ancient world and what they knew about, you've got, you've got Egypt over here. And you've got India over here, and right in the middle, you've got, like, Assyria, Babylon, and the Euphrates is right there. And the Euphrates, kind of like the Nile in Egypt, like the Euphrates is the source of life in a desert land. And the Euphrates was regarded as the center of the world. That's the point to take away from this. From the center of the world, the middle of everything all the way out to the coastlands, all the way out to the islands, all the way out even to Tarshish, which is not Tarsus where we're thinking about Paul way later. This is a place that is so far, far away you can't even imagine it. We have suggestions that maybe it's Spain, maybe it's Sardinia um, in the western Mediterranean, maybe it's India. But the idea is it's a place so unimaginably far away. My first pastoral call was in um, Dallas County, uh, Alabama, and we were located about, I'd say about 50 miles from Montgomery, there were people in that county that had never been out of the county, but like they had never been over to Montgomery, which was like two counties away. There were roads, you could easily get there, but it never traveled This is the world at the time. Most people are living within a small area of their homes. Like, people are not vacationing and going places. I don't think we can even catch the impact of the words that are here for how far away that this spreads. I got on a jet with Mission India to fly over to India. I got on a jet in Los Angeles to fly to Sydney in Australia for 15 hours. We can conceptualize those things. These people have no reference point. This is something that's so unimaginably huge that there is just no way to possibly get there, and yet God is there. And yet his blessings extend there. And there's a part of it that can be a little uncomfortable, too, if you look at verse 9. May the desert tribes bow down before him, May the enemies lick lick the dust. You know, we've got this kind of thing. um, David talked about it over in Psalm 110. Um, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. And there is this depiction of... When the blessings come, God's power will be evident and respected, and it will happen. Paul picks up the thing. 1 Corinthians 15, if this one doesn't make your heart sore like something's wrong, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is what this psalm is talking about. Not Christ's first coming. It is talking about that fullness, that blessing. Even the mountaintops have grain. Flowers are everywhere. There's no more sun and moon because of the presence of God. His glory is seen everywhere. I do think we get a little taste of this, though, in kind of a prophetic foreshadowing way. Um, you know there's a rule in real life there's no foreshadowing but if you've got prophecy then like it works and so that can totally happen and we've got this mention here um, may gold of Sheba be given to him in Psalm 72 15 um, Sheba was down the Red Sea a bit basically where Yemen is kind of the uh, entrance of the Red Sea into um, the uh, the Indian Ocean the the Gulf of Arabia We've got this interesting story that the Bible decides to tell us twice in full detail, um, Chronicles and 1 Kings. And you've probably heard of these characters, but I want to read this to you. And as I read this to you, I want you to be thinking, the picture of Solomon's court and the abundance of that, but then also the further picture of the blessings of the gospel that flow. This is 1 Kings 10. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a great routine, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house, that is, the house of the Lord that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She's a queen. She comes and sees this. It takes her breath away. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my land of your words and your wisdom. Righteousness exalts a nation. The people of Israel are blessed. But I did not believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. And behold, not the half was told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. It was even bigger than I thought it would be. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This carries us back to the beginning of our psalm. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. A talent is not a coin. It's a unit of weight that's about 250 pounds. So I didn't do the math on this. I should have multiplied that out. 250 pounds times 120. That is a lot of gold. (laughs) And a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as those that the queen of Sheba gave to king Solomon. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked that was given to her by the bounty of King of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. The queen came bearing gifts. She saw the abundance, the prosperity. She heard the wisdom of the Lord that he spoke through Solomon. She heard... This and saw God's blessing on the people and on the land and on the king. And she gave Solomon all this stuff, and then Solomon gave her back more than she brought with her. Which might remind you of another king we've heard of a bit around here Jesus, who gives us more. So I want to bring you to the heart of the psalm, and this is the chiastic center verses 12 through 14, the part of it that we might just skip over. Because, you know, it's kind of tucked away there in the middle. It's not really getting repeated that much. Um, We're not used to looking for meaning in the middle. But here it is. We've got all this glory. We've got new heavens. We've got new earth. We've got bounty. We've got the mountains waving with grain. We've got flowers all over the place, even in the cities. We have blessing flowing. Why do the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him? Psalm 72.12 For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and, has, and him who has no helper. And I want to point out that we're not being told about the character of mercy at this point but of justice and righteousness. That blessing is poured out. This Is the picture of the gospel. Matthew 9 Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That is the picture of the gospel. I served Puppets for 14 years in the PCA. Um, I'm a clinical mental health counselor at this point. I treat a lot of trauma. The question in my office day by day is not, will someone come in who's experienced serious life-changing trauma, assault, maybe over years? It's how much of that we're going to be treating today. I do not know of a job that... I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you in my heart, and, and, and here you go. I do not know of a job that is more difficult, more strenuous, harder than pastoring a church. You have no idea. The last time I saw a man ordained in this sanctuary, I actually cried... I know it seems lovely. You get up, you sing songs, you leave the service, you get to get up and preach. I don't know if any of my, my brethren teaching elders would say this to you, but you have no idea how hard it is. And if you think well of me at this point, you might notice that that's not what I'm doing right now. So you might want to think differently about that. This is the most difficult job. People come to me every day talking about how they have been beat up, assaulted, death happening all around them. Whole families wiped out and I'm the only one that's left. My job is a lot easier now than it was when I was ministering in a pulpit. I don't even know how to describe it to you. I remember going to Presbyterian, different men coming up to me, and they would be talking about things in their churches and stuff they were dealing with and all that, and there's, like, hell and havoc happening. And you're praying for blessing. And just sitting there listening to the stories and going... Yeah, okay, I can identify with that. Like, I remember that. And I've had that kind of thing going on. Whatever you do in this meeting today, be gentle. Demonstrate the love of Christ. I'm not telling you anything about what you need to do. I've enjoyed Mark's ministry here. I think God's going to call someone to the pulpit here that's going to be awesome. I had tremendous respect for Dale's ministry And I was deeply hurt and offended when I heard that there were people who were saying that he in some way had been unethical in the way he ministered things at the end, which is simply not true. We're a PCA congregation. There are two things that you own beyond everything else the book gives to you, the book of church order. And one is this piece of property that we're standing in. You absolutely own this. You, the congregation, not the session, not the deacons, not the presbytery, certainly not the assembly. And the other thing is the call of the pastor. You own that. All the book says is you've got to appoint a committee and have them report back to you. There's stuff the denomination offers to help out, but all the book says is you've got to appoint a committee and they report back to you. You have wide latitude to do whatever you want to do. You... Own this. You are not under the session for this. They don't guide this process. You're not under the diaconate. You're not under the presbytery. You're not underneath the general assembly, only to the degree that those different levels of the church would make sure everything gets done in a fair and equitable way. But your decision is your decision, and beloved, I would encourage you to pray and to feel the weight of it and whatever happens with the decision that you have today, whatever pastors that you encounter in your experiences going forward, in this church or any others, it is the hardest job I have ever seen. It is the hardest job that I have ever seen. Verses 13 and 14, he has pity on the weak and needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. This is the heart of the psalm. He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. That is the picture of Jesus Christ that is the ministry of the gospel and that is the blessing that he gives to us who comes to us when we are sick and needy and dead in sin and brings us to himself and binds us up and helps us, where did the thing go the, the little um, flyer for Christmas child Samaritan's Purse, the Samaritan's Purse is used to to minister mercy in the Bible and Franklin Graham taking that name, it's a beautiful thing We've talked about the time will come when the world will flower and there will be no more need of a sun or moon because God will be there in the radiance of his glory and his people will gather together. And there's the tree of life bearing fruit of 12 kinds for the healing of the nations, and it is no longer forgiven. And there is so much blessing and abundance of glory. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me and I just want to put out there the glory and the blessing and the benefit and if you don't think that God cares about our hurts our sorrows death that we experience personally and with people that we love you've missed the psalm that's all through here. So I'm going to take you back to that verse in John 13, and I'm going to leave you with this. It's the one that's printed in the bulletin, the little chiasm I showed you. It is the night in which he was betrayed. Jesus is gathered together with his disciples. Like David's last words, this is a time to say something that's really important. And you may think, well, everything Jesus says is really important. You know, it's in red in my Bible. It is. It is. Everything that Jesus says is really important. But this is the time to say what's really important. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is not from the Bible, but from the history of the church. John, John, the author of the gospel on his deathbed, with people gathered around him, his last words, Beloved, love one another. Beloved, love one another. And if you look at this statement from Jesus, I can tell you with absolute certainty because of the poetic structure that's here. Here's the point of that verse on that night. You also are to love one another. And if you take no other point away from this than that, blessings. So I was thinking about what hymn to end this with, and I couldn't come up with a better one than O Sacred Head. It is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the humility of Christ. You may think it's sort of an odd pick where we start out with Christ as the king and all of these blessings and bounty that comes from the king, but the blessings come at a cost and the flowers come at a great cost and the hymn speaks to that. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for glimpses of glory. We thank you for your hand of healing. And we thank you that you love us in our weakness and our frailty and our sin. And we pray your peace and your presence and your love. And Father, also that we might love as Jesus loved. If only one thing, Father, that. And we lift these prayers together in his name. Amen.